You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Having a good rental management software is essential for landlords who want to stay on top of their finances, save time, and reduce stress during tax time. Without one, you're reliant on outdated and error-prone processes like spreadsheets, paper receipts, and manual reconciliation. Who wants to do that? This can lead to compliance issues, overpaid taxes, expensive vacancy periods, or worse. Enter your income and expense tracking with Landlord Studio today. Import transactions to quickly reconcile expenses, automate rent collection and income tracking, digitize receipts on the go, and instantly generate financial reports, including Schedule E, to make tax filing a breeze. Landlord Studio is much more than just a rental accounting solution, though. Take advantage of their range of property management tools, from finding and screening tenants to managing leases and even tracking and managing property maintenance tasks. You can learn more about Landlord Studio and start your 14-day free trial at landlordstudio.com. Use the coupon code REALESTATECPA at checkout for 25% off your plan. Again, that's landlordstudio.com slash CPA and use coupon code REALESTATECPA to get 25% off your plan and a 14-day free trial today. We do want to let you know that we did officially release the Short-Term Rental Tax Course, which teaches you everything you need to know about the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. In the course, I cover an overview of the short-term rental loophole and its powerful tax benefits, how to materially participate in your short-term rentals to reduce taxes on your W-2 and other active income, how to maximize your tax savings using cost segregation studies and bonus depreciation, as well as how to avoid critical mistakes that can cost you thousands of dollars in tax savings. By the end of the course, you will know exactly what you need to do to use the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. With the amount of value that is included in this course and the potential tax savings, I could have easily charged upwards of $997 or perhaps even $1,500 for this course, but you know what? Because I want to help as many people use the short-term rental loophole as possible, I'm giving it away for only $247. This is really next to nothing if you think about the potential tax savings that you can get from using a short-term rental loophole. And with bonus depreciation phasing out over the next few years, the sooner you can take advantage of the short-term rental loophole, the more tax you'll be able to save. So if you're ready to save five to six figures in taxes by using the short-term rental loophole, you can enroll in the course today by going to courses.taxsmartinvestors.com and enrolling. It's just that simple. Again, that's courses.taxsmartinvestors.com taxsmartinvestors.com. So James and Raleigh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a brief overview of your backgrounds and kind of how you got involved in the SCR spaces? We'll start with one of you, whoever wants to jump in first, and we'll go with the other one next. Take it away, Riley. Sure. Yeah. So my background is essentially in buying multifamily properties in Southwestern Ontario. And I was using the joint venture and the Burr method in doing that. So that allowed me to get to around $5 million in real estate in two years, my very first two years investing. And then James and I actually connected. And James has, has obviously done super, super well with Airbnb as a whole. And he got in my ear and we started buying Airbnb properties. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, I bought a few short-term rentals now. And the cash flow is just so good. It's difficult not to, to go all in on them. So yeah, that, that's my experience so far and, and still using joint venturing, still using the Burr. And now we've just added in the whole short-term rental strategy to the next. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then for me, so like while Riley was building his multifamily portfolio of long-term rentals, I was doing property management uh, with short-term rentals. So I was managing Airbnb properties in Toronto and Canada. 
and grew a portfolio of like 35 properties you're managing. And yeah, I'd never actually gotten to the investing side of things. So then it was kind of this really like natural fit where Riley had been investing in long-term rentals and always been interested in the short-term rental side of things. I had always been managing short-term rentals and really invested in actually owning them and actually investing in them. So then we teamed up and started buying them. And so I had that background of like property management and analysis and like all that stuff. Riley had all his background for like financing the deals, finding them, doing the renovation, all that stuff. And then we teamed up and started buying them. And uh, the rest is history. It's done really well for us. That's awesome. And, you know, just as a quick side note, you know, it's interesting. I'm here in New York and Toronto is so close. It's so close to New York. It's like six hours. It's like a six hour drive. I was going to come up there at some point over the next you know, few weeks, probably before it got too cold. But anyway, that's a side note. So can you tell us a little bit about your investment strategy? Like, you know, what, what kind of short-term rental strategy do you employ? There's a lot of different kind of strategies out there people use. Is there anything specific you're using? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, Riley can Riley can speak to the the Burr method that we use on a lot of these uh, a lot of these properties that we're buying. But like specifically for us, we're purchasing mostly properties in rural kind of cottage country. Riley actually has a really interesting deal he can talk about as well, where he bought a, a multifamily property over in Nova Scotia, like kind of in in a smaller city, but in a city uh, that he's doing short term rental with. But where we started and where we're focusing a lot of our our energy right now is in like cottage country type investments. So, you know, a couple of hours outside of the urban center where people are going to get away and we're buying single family homes that are usually four to six bedroom and can accommodate larger groups. Those tend to do really well because we can purchase them relatively inexpensively, but they can bring in a ton of money because the larger groups are you know willing to pay more per night most of the time. Yeah, and I'll, I'll let Riley touch on some of the stuff that he's done with the with like the multifamily that's different from that, and then also kind of our overall burst strategy that we're using on those properties. Something that, that I found was pretty interesting with the whole idea of buying single families with the intention of using it as a short term rental was that it works really really well when the market's doing super well. It's really a luxury asset to own, and when the market starts to shift, you might not have a strong plan B. And obviously, James and I are all about mitigating that downside. What is the risk? But when, when you're in the middle of nowhere, like in cottage country, you can only kind of scale that so far before the risk becomes quite a bit if the market were to shift, if that makes sense. Because you know the overhead for one property could be five grand a month between mortgage, utilities, property tax, insurance, that sort of thing. So th- that's why we started actually doing uh, multifamily. Like I, I bought the one there, like James said, in Halifax. The reason why is that you have a very, very strong plan B where even in the worst case scenario, you know, let's say that short-term rental doesn't do so well, you still have the medium-term rental or even the long-term rental for that matter as an option where you can still float the property and still be cash flow. So, you know, it's important to diversify a bit and not just go all in on like properties that are super rural, but to also make sure that you have some short-term rentals that could pivot in the worst case scenario too. So that, that's why we started buying multis and, you know, we're kind of shifting, going back and forth, making sure that it's a healthy balance between, you know, the nice rural properties that cash flow super, super, super well uh, when the market does well, but also in the multi short-term rental space, when you know the market might not be doing so well, we can still cash flow. I like that a lot, actually. I think as I've looked at buying another short-term rental, uh, we've considered okay, what's the current short-term rental rates that we could get? You know, maybe we'll, we'll talk about tools kind of later on, but kind of evaluating what would that be. But then, what if it was a midterm, like you said, or what if it was a long-term rental? What's kind of our you know risk tolerance? And could we at least, you know, break even if like, you know, the short-term rental doesn't work out. But to my next question, so now that you've kind of identified that kind of cottage country, what's kind of the other acquisition criteria that you guys are looking at to acquire? 
in cottage country, we like to look for properties that are um, for us, the area that we're investing in the cottage country specifically that we're, that we're investing in. It's a couple hours out of Toronto. So it's most of the people from the city going up there, typically like families or groups of friends. Um, they want to be by the water. They want to get away and relax. Um, in the winter time, they're just going out there to like hang out, you know, maybe do some skating nearby on the lake or something like that. Uh, in the summertime, they want to like play games, you know, go out on the water, that kind of stuff. So we like to find properties that are close to the water. A lot of the time we're buying something like across the road from the water or down the road from the water, not right on the water, because on the water, you're competing with all the people that are buying cottages for themselves that want to dock their boat there. So it's a lot more expensive. And then your property taxes are higher. So we found a a great little kind of niche in buying these properties that have proximity to water. So the short-term rental guests who aren't docking a boat there, they can still access it super easily and still get all the benefit from it but we don't pay the premium for it. So that's one thing. The other one, like I mentioned, is buying properties that are going to be able to accommodate larger groups. So ideally, we want to buy something four or five bedroom and then a couple bathrooms as well so we can comfortably accommodate a larger group of people. We like to have neighbors not be close by because when you get you know, a group of 10 people together at an Airbnb, even if they're not throwing a party, if they're there on a Tuesday night for their vacation and they're out in the backyard hanging out, having some drinks, you know, just chatting, it's going to be a lot louder than the neighbors would like if they're super close by and they have to wake up early and go to work the next morning. So we like to keep some privacy from the neighbors if we even have neighbors. Um, one of the recent projects I did has like a geodesic dome in the back too. So we're kind of keeping our eyes out for any um, properties that have extra space, extra acreage, where we can do something cool like that. And then we're also like not really a criteria for the property, but we're also looking at like what amenities can we add to the properties that are going to really increase the value that we can get from them. So things like a hot tub or a sauna, board games, different, like a little movie theater set up inside, that kind of thing. Anything else to add there, Riley? I think James did an excellent job. Um, the amenities that we've found have a super high ROI, especially here in Northern Ontario would be hot tubs and saunas. They just do super well. Looking at even the opportunity to install a few volleyball courts where we can put in some sand, we can box it in, we can put up, it's like something like that can cost maybe $500 or $750, but it could bring in thousands of dollars a year in extra income because it's those little amenities that it's difficult to calculate the ROI on it exactly. But like there's a good chance that they're the tipping point between someone when they're choosing between one, let's see, and another that they go with yours. So yeah, keep your eyes open. And, and it, again, depends on where you are. If you're in California or something, you might not do a hot tub and a sauna, but maybe it's a cold bath that you're installing, something of that nature. So, Yeah. In the privacy piece, I actually have been talking with uh, a realtor buddy. They posted a castle, uh, kind of a historic castle on a river here in Minnesota where I live. And uh, basically, he told me, hey, there's some restrictions with the number of nights that you can rent this place out. And that kind of came about because the neighbor right next to them was complaining that they were having, you know, 20 people at their Airbnb. So they went to the city and basically complained. And so now that's completely limited their ability to rent as a short-term rental. So have you guys come across any sort of, you know, issues with that with folks? That's a, that's a really good point you bring up is around like city regulation. That's another criteria that I forgot to mention for us. So like one of the things that I experienced managing properties in Toronto is like it's a downtown metro area. And I sort of managed it through that period where they were deciding how do we regulate this stuff and, and kind of saw the process that they used to make those kind of decisions. And what struck me was like, it's obvious looking back, but the way to figure out what a city is going to do is to look at what their priorities are, right? Like what's influencing the decisions they're making. So in Toronto, 
economically, they don't need short-term rentals, right? They've got a ton of hotels, like there's no real need for them. It's not a major part of the economy. So it's predictable that when people complain, um, there's going to be like hotel lobby groups that have a lot of influence there. There's going to be condo boards that don't want to deal with it that have a lot of influence there. And so it's pretty easy to see how things are going to get skewed towards not being so favorable for short-term rentals. There's also like big talks about like politically, there's big talks about a housing crisis in Toronto where like people can't find affordable housing. So even if it doesn't actually correlate to short-term rentals and you could debate that one way or the other, it was predictable that they'd go, Hey, like this is a move we're making to be in the political, you know, good space where we've done something to help people get affordable housing as we've cut down the number of short-term rentals. So we always look at the markets that we're investing in now through that lens of like, what's the priority for that municipality, for that city? What is in their best interest? If it's actually in their best interest to limit or restrict or ban short-term rentals, we tend to just really shy away from that, even if they haven't acted on it yet, because we know that inevitably they're going to end up taking some kind of action that's not going to be really helpful for us. So one of the markets that we're investing in right now, um, like the main kind of cottage country market we're investing in right now their population like doubles and triples in the summertime. And all of that is tourism going into cottages, going into short-term rentals. They've got like one or two hotels um, in the whole, like this massive area, right? Like most of the towns or municipalities don't have a single hotel in them. And so that's also what supports all the local businesses. Like every single one of their different local businesses there relies on that tourism coming in in the summertime to support them. So if they start really heavily clamping down on short-term rentals, they would just kill their entire local economy. We know that's not in their best interest. We know that no town is going to decide, hey, let's just kill our local economy overnight and let's see how that goes for us. Like that's not going to get anyone reelected. So we know that that's not the decisions they're going to be making. So that's kind of where we tend to place our bets is on areas that not only haven't regulated or have regulated favorably for short-term rentals right now, but that from everything we can see, looking at what their priorities are and what their motivations are and what kind of forces are influencing them, then in the future, it's going to stay that way. Those are really good insights because, you know, I just kind of want to highlight here for everybody who's listening, all the listeners, like we've had a handful of guests on so far, and I think we have some common threads here, right? So if you're going to be investing in a market, you want to make sure that, A, to James's point, that the government, the local government does not have an incentive to close or prohibit or limit uh, short-term rentals because that can kill uh, your operation. At the same time, uh, it also doesn't hurt if you are taking some risks to have to kind of stress test the deal, right? What if it's a midterm? What if it's a long-term rental? Because worst case scenario, if that does happen, well, you could always convert it to a short-term, excuse me, a long-term rental if, if necessary. So kind of two different ways to view that side of the coin. Just want to call that out for our listeners. Ryan, uh, if you have another question, uh, yeah, feel free to jump in. No. Do you want to talk about a, a specific deal? Yeah. I think Riley, you, you might have a deal you want to walk through. So uh, we can do the multifamily one actually in Nova Scotia. So that's kind of an interesting deal. So we found the property on the market and I want to kind of preface this by saying that this was like eight months in the making to find this property. You have to have some patience to find the gems, like to find really good deals. Like So make sure that you have that patience there and make sure as well that you have a really good investor-friendly realtor. So our realtor he knew that it was going to take a little bit of time based on my criteria. So he was he was game for it though. And we did over a dozen showings and walkthroughs. Finally found the right property. And what, what made it the right property was, number one, the backyard space was quite large. So we can put in a hot tub, we can put in a sauna, we can have nice games like spike ball, cornhole, whatever we want to do, have a nice campfire there. So we have a campfire in the back. 
Each unit also had its own private deck, which was nice. So that was a, a good thing that we had looked for there. It, there was also two separate basements, which was super helpful for washer and, and dryer kind of space for each side. And we also look for a multifamily properties that we can be in a league of our own in a way. Because if we just have a one bed or a bachelor, we're really directly competing against hotels. So when we're competing against hotels, we're kind of capped at maybe 100, 150, maybe $200 a night for the most part, depending on, again, the city that you're in. So we look for two or even three bed units. So all of these units in this multifamily were two or three beds or more. Um, the thing for the three bed unit was there was one bathroom and we wanted to have eight guests in there because you can have a polo coach in the living room. So, you know, kind of two guests per bed and then the polo coach could be another two. So that's eight guests. Well, we could only do again with that, with one bathroom, it's limited. So we were able to, and this was all before we put in the offer, right? Figure out how could we put in that second bathroom into that unit? So we figured that out. And so we, we ran all the numbers. It made sense. It was about a hundred grand of renovation costs. The property was listed for five five fifty, I believe. I got them down to five or four seventy five because for a few different reasons, we were able to negotiate and counter offer pretty strong. So we have a whole kind of standard operating procedure for how we negotiate after the inspection. You, you definitely want to find out more about the property and the deficiencies of the property than the owner even realizes, and you get to realize that through the inspection. So you really want to do a super deep dive during that inspection. Counter offer strong, and so we were able to get it for four seventy five. Um, four hundred seventy-five thousand, and we knew it as even a long term. If we were to just simply renovate this with like twenty grand of renovation costs, we'd still be cash flowing, and we'd still hit the one percent rule um, for a long term rental. So we knew that we we had something here, right? So um, that was a super strong plan. Plan B is a long term rental. So going in, we spent a hundred grand. We fixed up. We put in an extra bathroom in the three bed unit, and right now it's doing. It's done 65,000 in the last four months. So it's been operating for four months and it's done 65,000. And we had put in 10% down for the down payment. So we were in it for around 150,000 and, and it's you know done 65,000. In terms of the NOI on that, we're looking at right now, um, it cash flowing around three to 4,000 a month pretty consistently. So again, that, that's a project that we just did. It took four months to renovate it and eight months to find it, but now it's been operating for four months and, and been going super well. Now the challenge just to share is coming into November, December, where it's low season in, in Nova Scotia, there's very few bookings. So uh, we, we certainly, we haven't installed the hot tub or the sauna yet, but we're really hoping that that will be the amenity that will tip us in the favor of guests actually starting to use the property. Because you have to think in terms of the guests, like why would they go to your property in say the winter months when it's not, not, not as exciting in the area, there's not as many activities. Well, they want to have activities in this property during their stay that they wouldn't have in their actual home. So if people live in Halifax or Nova Scotia in a condo, an apartment, townhome, they likely don't have a hot tub or a sauna. So by us having that, then there's that extra reason for them going and staying there in say November, December, January when it's not peak season. Yeah. Is that kind of the primary way that you get folks to go in the winter and kind of the off season is providing kind of those extra amenities that they can still use and activities they can do? kind of in that off season? Is that kind of the primary way? That would be the primary way. Yeah. Got it. I want to jump in there as well and just kind of highlight for anyone listening that there's, I think what what kind of got grazed over there in what Riley was sharing, but is super worth mentioning is that with Riley's deal that he just walked through, there's so many different levels of backup plans that make that deal really great, right? He's got, um, he's done the renovation, 
right? So he's increased the value of the property, done like a value add renovation. He can then go and refinance that property and pull out a bunch of his initial investment to protect himself that way. Um, and then he's got really strong cash flow on, on it from short-term rental. So there's a lot of opportunity for that short-term rental income to dip down and he would still have enough buffer there so that he can continue holding the property and doesn't end up being forced to sell it. And he's got the, the long-term rental backup plan there. So a scenario where, where he would have to sell that property is like pretty much would never happen. Right. And that's ultimately what we're, what a lot of people are afraid of is like, Hey, what if things tank? Right. Like what if the economy isn't as good? And what we always tell people is like, you really want to make sure that you, no matter what deal you're doing, run the worst case scenario and make sure that in a worst case scenario, you will never be forced to sell the property. Because if you're forced to sell the property and the value is lower than what you bought it for, that's where you start really, really being in hot water. And so that's what we're always trying to avoid. And like Riley's got three different kind of backup contingencies on that one deal alone to prevent that from ever happening. Yeah, and I should add in here as well, like just to James's point, um, if one unit doesn't do well, we can flip it over into a long term. We can keep the other two operating as a short term. So we, if there's one unit that's struggling to keep up, we can kind of do a mix of short term versus long term. And then the ARV, so the after repair value, here's the equation that we use for the Burr method, because you're naturally trying to create a lift between what you buy it for and what it's worth after you do the renovation. The formula that we use is just is simply the ARV, which is 725000 for this property in particular in Halifax. You times it by 0.8, which is 80% loan to value for your refi amount. And then you subtract your renovation costs. So if we do that, 725 times by 0.8, subtract the 100 grand of rental costs, we're at 480,000, which would be the max purchase price. We bought it for, again, 475. So we're refinancing it right now after four months, or technically after eight months of owning it. And we'll be able to pull out all of the money from the down payment, the rental costs, the closing, and still be cash flowing quite well. So that's the goal for a lot of the students we work with too, is getting that money back out within a year or two. That's awesome. And just my last question here for now, I guess, are you guys planning to hold these kind of just indefinitely? Are they all kind of a certain threshold that you're planning to hold these properties? Yeah, we're, we're really just looking to hold on to them. Like they cash flow super well. So we're looking to hold on to them. The only thing that I could really see us causing us to sell them for the foreseeable future, at least, would be to like kind of double down into a bigger project, take on something larger. But that's the great thing about these, right? Is that like if we can pull our initial investment out through like a refinance or something like that, and then it's still cash flowing, there's no real reason to to sell it. It's just literally property that we own that's appreciating every single year and that we get cash flow from every month. So uh, that's awesome. I mean, that's the burst strategy is is quite an amazing strategy for sure. When, when it comes to like, you know, I know you two work together. Are what kind of team do you have? Do you have a team, or is it? Are you do you pretty much do everything? Yeah, take it take it away, Riley. Like Riley. I mean, Riley manages the the most of like the kind of property acquisition and renovation. He's got teams built out for that. On the back end, as far as like managing it, well, here I'll, I'll let Riley take it away and kind of work in logical order from when we buy it to once you know once it's up and running. Yeah, so two different groups of people. So the one group, really, it's our power team for closing. So that's going to be our lawyers, our accountants, making sure that we we have a realtor as well. Like for that deal, I just explained a good realtor, property insurance, a mortgage broker. So we have all those people for closing. So we've in each city that we're in, we have a specific team for closing, right? That's for both acquiring and for closing. Um, the other person I should also mention is, is naturally the home inspector, right? And a really good GC that can go in with the home inspector. So that's something that we've found works super well during the acquiring piece. When again, we want to learn so much about the property, even way more than the actual owner knows about the property that we're going to 
you know, how we're going to do that is sending the, sending the home inspector and the general contractor. And then they just go back and forth. The GC is there with his notepad and, and his, you know, and, and his, and his pen, pencil there taking down all the notes for the deficiencies of the property. The home inspector is telling him what, what to take down notes on. So that goes well for us to be able to quote how much will it be to uh, really renovate the property and make it up to spec. Um, and then that's what we'll counter with. So as well, you know, be the deficiencies that are new found, newly found that we can counter on. So that that's really the gist for the acquiring for the for the counter offer phase. And then once we actually buy the property, we have a different power team. So that's our contractor power team. That's going to be people like again the general contractor, potentially a project manager, depending on how big the project is. We might have to have extra level of management. Typically, it goes project manager at the top, general contractor, and then individual trades like you know if you're electrician, your plumber your flooring specialist, tile specialist, painter, et cetera. So we have all of those people there at our disposal. Now, at the same time, James and I are one extra degree away from even just talking to the project manager or even talking to the general contractor or the trades for sure. So we we work with a virtual assistant. She actually lives in Portugal and she's fully employed. And like the position's title is portfolio manager. So she oversees everything to do with the renovation management and then the long-term property management as well. So what that would look like, you know, obviously James can speak to this more, but the guest communication piece. So we have a specific person for guest communication that again, this portfolio manager oversees. Then we have a cleaning team and a maintenance person that will be going in during turnovers to make sure that everything again is up to our standard for guests. Yeah. And the, that portfolio manager really is a key piece there, especially when it comes to managing it day to day, because typically the way you'd have it set up is like a lot of people are either self-managing, which is kind of the lowest leverage type of setup. Or then they'll hire like a cleaning team, right? And they'll hire a maintenance person or they'll hire maybe a guest communication person. But then ultimately, a lot of the time, you as the owner end up being the linchpin and, and sort of the, the conduit through which everything flows. So when the cleaning team notices that there's like some damage at the property, they tell you, and then you have to reach out to the maintenance person. And then if the guest communication person gets a request from the, uh, from the guest, they then tell you and you have to then get in touch with the cleaning team to go and drop off more towels or whatever it is. And so now we've got this virtual assistant, this portfolio manager who acts as that conduit so that we don't actually have to be involved. And day to day, we're not involved in any of these different moving pieces and getting pulled back into being in the business as opposed to working on it. No, it's awesome. The traction model or E-Myth revisited, right? Work on the business, not in the business. That's awesome. Because yeah, those little things, believe it or not, in every business kind of can pull you back into, suck you back into to the weeds, if you will. And uh, obviously, as a business owner, you don't want to be in the weeds. If you don't have to, you want to kind of try to be overseeing things as much as you can, right? Right, right. You want to take the next question we have here? Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you guys have, you know, your portfolio manager who's basically your virtual assistant. It's kind of sounds like they're basically your property management company. So like, are they kind of your property management company? And then like, if so, like, how did you find this virtual assistant as your portfolio manager? How's that going? I'll say like, Riley can speak to how we found uh, we found that person because that was all Riley's doing. As far as the property management company, like typically, if you were to hire a property management company and pay them the 20 or 30% or whatever it is, depending on the market that you're in, they would take care of a few of those moving pieces. Like they would take care of hiring the cleaning team and they would take care of having the maintenance person and doing the guest communication and doing the pricing optimization. And then the owner of the property management company, if they're small, would be the portfolio manager, that virtual assistant. Or if they're larger, they would have someone like that on their team. 
And so we've kind of put those different pieces together. So obviously that's kind of comes from my background of knowing how to build this and structure it. So we went and hired the guest communication person, had all the systems for them, hired the cleaning team, had all the systems for them, hired the maintenance person, had all the systems for them. And then the last kind of pieces that we didn't mention yet is pricing optimization. That's another component that a lot of the automated tools out there, we find we can outperform them. And so we have, we have someone on our team that does all of our pricing optimization for us as well and just kind of goes in there once a week and, and checks on it. And yeah, I mean, Riley can speak to how we got our portfolio manager on board because that's obviously like, that's just such a key role in the in the business and, and someone that saves us a tremendous amount of time. Yeah, there's there's really a few different resources to be able to go and find a good virtual assistant. And I know Tim Paris has his legendary book, The 4-Hour Workweek, that speaks a lot about virtual assistants. The few different resources that I've used that have worked super well one is a platform called JobRack, and that helps you to find Eastern European workers. So places like Bosnia, Serbia, that sort of thing. And I find they're fantastic. They're quite independent. You can give them a lot of autonomy and they want to work remote. And in terms of relative income, it could be 4 to $6 an hour USD or CAD. So in their currency, the local currency relative, obviously to how much things cost there, it's actually really good income. So you can get a good bang for your buck in North America for sure. The other resource as well that I find works super well is just LinkedIn. So LinkedIn now has a job posting uh, section. And that's actually how I found this virtual assistant, uh, the portfolio manager. I was through LinkedIn and there's a category called virtual assistants. So you can go there, you can post a job. You can also find people that have already posted their resume on LinkedIn looking for employment, remote employment, of course. You can categorize it or break it down there. There's a little filter on LinkedIn for where they live. So you can look at that too. If you want to find someone in a certain country, for example, you can. That's fantastic. And as we're kind of talking about like these tools and LinkedIn and systems, like you mentioned, James, are there any other like kind of key software or systems that you guys use that you want to share with with our listeners? Yeah. So I would I would say like for us, Hostaway is a really great software. Like we use that for all of our channel management for managing our properties. For anyone that doesn't know what a channel management software is, Basically, it solves that problem of you have two, three, four properties, and each one of those properties is listed on maybe Airbnb and VRBO and booking.com. And now suddenly you've got like nine different logins and you have to go and like manage everything. And you're getting notifications from all different places. You're missing your guest messages. It's like a nightmare, right? And so a channel manager just takes that all and puts it into one centralized backend. So you can go and update your prices in one place. You can go and respond to your guest messages all in one place. You can update your listings and change out the photos all in one place. And it's really helpful because we've also got it set up so that we allow our cleaners specific access to that so they can schedule themselves. They just look at our calendar and know exactly when to go in there. We can also create tasks for our maintenance person or someone on our team can. So like if the cleaner goes in there, notices damage, they let our portfolio manager know. Portfolio manager creates a task in Hostaway that then sends out the notification to our maintenance person to go by there, gives them a checklist of exactly what to do. So that's just like a really, really great tool. I highly recommend Hostaway. I, I know the guys there and they're uh, they're like a great team. The product is great. So that's a really good one. And then, yeah, like on the analysis side of things, I'm sure we're going to touch more on that. But AirDNA is fantastic. AirDNA is basically just a data company that has all the data for how short-term rentals all over the world perform. And yeah, we couldn't possibly analyze properties without that or without a service like that. So AirDNA is really good for just knowing your numbers going into the deal because I think a lot of people kind of do back of the envelope math and they just kind of go, well, you know, what do I think it could generate in a night? And then let me take a guess and say that it would be booked for 20 nights out of the month. And then they 
basically are just throwing a dart at a dartboard to try to figure out how the property is going to perform. And AirDNA allows you to just like go in and see, oh, the other property across the street that's very similar exactly how much money did it bring in over the last 12 months and like, you know, compare to similar properties, stuff like that. Two quick, real quick follow-up questions. Does HostAway, like if you use, you know, Airbnb and VRBO and any other of those sites, do you still have to go into every single site and create the listing or does HostAway really make basically just one listing and it pushes it out to Airbnb, VRBO, any of those other sites? Yeah. So the easiest way to do it is like, if you've already got your listing set up, let's say on Airbnb, you can now pull it into HostAway, get it all set up on HostAway, and then you can push it out to VRBO from there. Um, so that then you don't have to go through the whole like listing creation process all over again. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, like they've got each integration works a little bit differently just based on what kind of access the API gives them. But that's the overall concept is that it makes it a lot easier to just like push it out and you may have to make a small, a few small tweaks, that kind of thing. Okay. And then just for like kind of getting your analysis, you know, pricing and rent estimates and whatnot. Do you guys also look at Rabu? I know that's kind of a, a popular site that people will use as well. Yeah, we we don't. We really rely on AirDNA. There's a few other ones like there's Rabu, like you mentioned. All the Rooms is another one that's quite good. Mashvisor used to be in the mix, but that's a much worse one in my opinion. But we just found for, especially for the areas that we're investing in, AirDNA is like the easiest to use combined with having a lot of really good data and we can manipulate the data in different ways. And one of the cool things is like we ended up investing in an enterprise level package with them where we get worldwide access to their market minder tools so we can look up any single market at all. And then the other cool thing that came with that, that's really great because Riley and I consult with members as well. And we help people to go through this whole process and invest in, in short-term rental properties. And so one of the cool things that we get access to with AirDNA is what they call their BPTI report, since we're best places to invest. And it's them, like their, their quants on their team, basically taking like a full breakdown about every market in the, in the US and every market in Canada, and then breaking down the top markets to invest in by... Like there, there's a there's like 30 different metrics they rank them on, but one of the kind of core pieces there is they're taking the average revenue from an, a given area, comparing that to the average purchase price for a property in that area, and then obviously areas that have a larger discrepancy there are better areas to to be investing in. Right, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, the AirDNA is pretty sophisticated software for sure. And before we kind of wrap up with the last uh, question or two here, any other tips on on property analysis that you'd want to share with the audience? Yeah. Riley, do you want to take this one or do you want me to grab this one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I miss anything, jump on in. Um, I always like to kind of use this analogy when we're talking about analysis. I like to think of like you as the investor doing the analysis as like the pilot in the airplane. And so there's the hub of the airplane actually, and there's all the gauges, you know, in, in the hub of the airplane. And each of these gauges are super, super critical to your survival as the investor. So if you don't know how all these different gauges work, you're probably going to crash. And the, the investment might not go that well. So you want to make sure that you have these gauges and they're in a way also standards, right? They're standards or metrics, KPIs that need to be hit before you accept a property into your portfolio. So a few of the, the standards, the metrics, the KPIs, you know, that we have would be total ROI, which is appreciation ROI, cash on cash ROI, and equity ROI added together to give you at least 25%. So 25% bare minimum. Now, could you get upwards of that? Of course. But 25% is the bare minimum. Um, it just isn't worth it for all the active work and what needs to be put into it. Um, to do anything less than that usually is what we find. And then we have cash on cash ROI is 15%. So again, we have to have 15% as a bare minimum 
for a property to be accepted in the portfolio. And there's a few other metrics, not to go too in-depth, but we use quite a few more. There's about eight of them, I think, in total that we have right now before a property has to be accepted or is allowed to be accepted, at least in our portfolio. And so you know, that's the philosophy that we use. And I find it works super well for us to be able to, again, kind of fly this whole portfolio that we're, that we're creating properly. Um, you know, and, and again, I hear all the time when I talk to beginner investors that they're kind of using their emotions, like James said, they're doing kind of back of the envelope math. And they're like, I think it's a good area. I know the area super well. I'm familiar with it. It just feels good. And I, I just caution you on doing that because I've seen that go horribly wrong. Could it go well? Yes, it could. But make sure that your analysis is very objective and analytical and not subjective and emotional, right? So that's the big distinction there. We do have three different levels that we're analyzing too. So it can be both efficient and effective. Not to go too in detail on it, but those eight metrics that we mentioned will be breaking down per level. So it's like level one will be maybe 30 seconds to a minute. It will take us and there's two metrics that we're looking for. And if they're hit, then it goes to level two, which might take us a half an hour and there's call it three metrics. And level three, it's a deep dive. You know, that might take us two hours to go super, super in detail on that analysis to double check everything, make sure that we're good for as is comps, ARB comps and everything in the middle. And then again, we might have called three different metrics there in level three. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty cool because you know I've not invested in short-term rentals, but I did invest in multifamily. And I could tell you you could spend a lot of time just analyzing bad deals. So, you know, that that's kind of a smart way to do it. Like, okay, you have your metrics here at the first level. Very easy. If they don't hit those like those check marks, okay, we'll throw that deal out. We're going to move on rather than going through this detailed process on every single you know opportunity that comes across your desk, so to speak. So that's that's really good to hear. All right. Well, you, you guys definitely know what you're talking about for sure. For sure, you know your stuff inside and out. How can our listeners kind of learn more? I know you help. I know you help investors uh, get into short-term rentals, kind of figure this out. Can you just briefly kind of take us through how you help them and then like how they can learn more about that? For sure. Yeah. So what we do is um, like we'll we'll often work with investors who are either looking to get started in short-term rentals or looking to scale their portfolio or who are who have some long-term rentals and want to start getting into the short-term rental space. And the way that we do that is by consulting with them. It's kind of tailored to the individual. So we'd be able to like get on a phone call to start with and kind of figure out exactly where the person's at, what their goals are, and lay out sort of a custom roadmap that we're typically working with someone for a six-month period holding their hand, giving them access to our different tools and resources that we use, our training, our systems, everything like that, and kind of our team that we work with. And so they can check out more and get in touch with us by going to bnbinnercircle.com and learning more there. And yeah, that's kind of the process that we do. It's really tailored to the individual and just helping them to identify like, okay, what is the end goal for you that you're looking to achieve where you are right now? And then kind of what is the roadmap, the most efficient way to get there? Got it. Awesome. We'll drop that in the show notes for everybody who who wants to learn more about that. Riley, James, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I think you added a lot of value to our listeners. And uh, this is definitely an excellent episode. Looking forward to putting this out there for everybody. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, before we go, I wanted to remind you about the short-term rental course, which breaks down everything you need to know about the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. After helping dozens of private clients and hundreds of bootcamp students, we wanted to help as many investors as possible use this strategy. And with bonus depreciation starting to phase out, the sooner you can take advantage of this short-term rental loophole, the bigger your potential tax savings. So if you don't want to miss out on this amazing opportunity, you can enroll in by going to www.courses.taxsmartinvestors.com. Again, that's courses.taxsmartinvestors.com. Com. That's all for today, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Tax Smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. Hey! 
If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.